In the second century, the North African uh, church father, famous and important figure named Tertullian, he famously asked this question, Tertullian did. Um, Here's the question. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Or what concord, he continued, is there between the academy and the church? So, The essence of Tertullian's question is simple. He wants to know, what is the relationship between Athens, which represents secular thought at its best, and Jerusalem, which he uses as a symbol of Christian conviction rooted in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ? So the question which has echoed down through the ages, right? What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Ask, how do we, how do we as Christians relate to non-Christian thought? So you can see the universality of this kind of question, right? Even if you've never heard of Tertullian or his famous question, right? You have surely asked yourself this question. Or even if you haven't asked yourself this question, We're all operating in terms of some kind of an answer to this question. So I want to look at uh, a couple possible ways to answer the question. All of which, to varying degrees, have been on display in the history of the Christian church. We could choose a Jerusalem-rejecting-Athens approach where all extra-biblical learning is despised or at least viewed very skeptically and marginalized. Jerusalem rejecting Athens. But of course, this view is impossible to keep in full purity since we all learn stuff from unbelievers and from extra-biblical sources, right? But there are some forms of Christianity which show such hostility to serious intellectual activity, that they tend toward this position. It's an extreme position, to be sure. A second option would be Athens rejecting Jerusalem. Here the idea is Athens is in the driver's seat, and where the Bible conflicts with secular thought, Athens wins. The biblical teaching is rejected, or it's ignored, or it's explained away. Right, And a good deal of modern liberal Christianity falls into this model. The Bible's fine until it conflicts with the findings of the latest findings of whatever discipline there is. A third option would be Jerusalem segregated from Athens. Right here the idea is biblical thought has its own domain and secular thought has its domain and the two have a sort of separate but equal relationship. So on this view, if some historical or scientific viewpoint conflicts with Scripture or appears to do so, it's not a problem. The Bible speaks to spiritual things, and Athens can tell us about worldly things with its own authority. And there's a good many Christians that hold to something like this view. Another variant of this, a fourth view, is Jerusalem integrated with Athens. Now, here are the ideas. We sort of take from both. We sort of balance them to arrive at a proper understanding of things. They both give us truth about their different domains, but we sort of need to synthesize them. 
So we have at least four views. You can think of others, but there's at least those four. And what I want to suggest is that Paul's procedure in Acts 17 follows none of these methods. But a fifth, if you will, a fifth, and a more properly biblical method. But we won't get to that until next week. When we look at Paul's actual address to the Athenians. What I want to do this morning is survey some very interesting background to what provokes the address. So we're we're continuing the series in the book of Acts, right? We're in Acts 17. At this point, Paul's now in Athens. Athens, right, the place where the roots of democracy were planted. Athens was the philosophical, intellectual center, if you will, of the ancient world. This is different than some of the other towns he's been into to this, to this point. Athens had four major philosophical schools for which it was famous. Right? The Academy of Plato. This, by the way, would be like having the four best universities in the world in your town. The Academy of Plato, the Lyceum of Aristotle, the Garden of Epicurus, and the Porch of Zeno. Zeno was the founder of Stoicism. All of these schools were founded in Athens in the 3rd or 4th century B.C. Now, for our purposes, I want to focus on Epicureanism and Stoicism because the text tells us in verse 18 that Paul encountered these philosophers in Athens in the marketplace. So, the Epicureans were materialists. They're very modern people in that way. They were materialists. They believed the universe was made up of atoms. Right? A-T-O-M-S. Atoms. Eternal atoms that swerve through space. All knowledge, they felt, came from sense perception. Everything we know, we know through the senses. So they sought purely natural explanations for things. Epicurus, for whom the school is named, right? They're Epicureans. They're named after this guy, Epicurus. He himself taught that lasting pleasure was the goal of life. Now, sometimes in our culture, if you say you call someone an Epicurean, we think, well, that means he was a hedonist. But that's not what Epicurus meant. When he said pleasure is the goal of life, by pleasure he means something like tranquility. Or an isolation from disturbing passions. An ability to go through life on an even keel. Appreciating the very simple pleasures. Realizing that death is the end. Accepting that. Resigning yourself to it. And then enjoy what you can without fear. Right, so needless to say, if you're an Epicurean, you're pretty hostile to theology. The Stoics, on the other hand, they agree, while they agreed, all knowledge comes from sense perception. Again, that means knowledge doesn't come from revelation. It all comes from sense perception. The, the Stoics held that the world was governed not by these atoms in space, right, swerving, but by reason. In that sense, they're very somewhat modern people. They believe in the deep rationality of the world, the Stoics. This reason that the Stoics believed in, or 
It was often called the Lagos, right? That's the Greek word for word. In the beginning was the Lagos. The Lagos was with God. The Lagos was God. That's John taking the Stoic idea of Lagos and transforming it. So the Stoics believed that the world was governed by reason or Lagos, and it was a a kind of a refined fire, a universal principle that permeates all things, including man. So they were somewhat pantheistic, but the God of their system was this refined, universal fire. Now, there's actually a a current uh, rising, uh, growing movement among philosophers in the world today called panpsychism. Some of you may have heard that. But pan means all. Psychism means soul or consciousness. Right? You can find this in any big university philosophy department now. Panpsychists believe psyche or consciousness goes all the way down in the universe. Atoms are conscious. Plants are conscious. Everything is conscious, and the human person is the highest level of consciousness. Right? That's very much, that's not far from what the Stoics believed. Stoics believed a kind of universal fire or reason went all the way down. Panpsychists believe consciousness goes all the way down. They're sort of the opposite of the materialists. It's just interesting. This stuff is is very presently uh, relevant. I actually listened to a podcast, a British podcast, not long ago on panpsychism. So the goal for man, the goal for the human race in Stoicism is also to live in harmony with nature. Which, by, for them, that meant you lived in harmony with reason. And they generally had a cyclical view of history. History would, would go through these sequences and cycles, but never really reach a final goal. And a number of these views are held by some vocal contemporary atheists. The late Christopher Hitchens, for example, was a professed admirer of Stoic and Epicurean thought. Now, Stoicism, by the way, some of you may know this. If you're a philosophy person or just a book person in theology or philosophy, you'll know this. Stoicism is making a massive comeback. There's all kinds of books out there on Stoicism that are, that are becoming bestsellers. It's a way modern people are trying to deal with the chaos of the world. So, by this, and here's an important caveat, by Paul's day, by the first century, These schools of thought are really not in their heyday. Their best days are behind them. Their glory days are in the past. And the situation in Athens and the surrounding world is is mostly one of widespread skepticism, of general turmoil, and even, as we shall see, boredom. Which, again, makes it remarkably like early 21st century Western civilization. Widespread skepticism, turmoil, boredom. So with that, I want to get to the text. And this is the beginning of Acts, well, Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Paul here, the apostles, on something of a missionary furlough. He's just arrived in Athens. He's waiting for Paul, uh, for Silas and Timothy to join him. So I want to look at this little vacation of Paul's. Under four headings, they're there in your bulletin. What he saw, what he felt, what he did, where it landed him. Four brief headings. So first, what he saw. 
So Acts 17, verse 16, says that he was waiting, while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Right? His spirit, some translations put it this way, his spirit was provoked in him as he saw the city was full of idols. So what did Paul see? He saw the city full of idols. In Athens, temples, altars, statues, shrines, and innumerable gods and goddesses were on display. One writer said that it's easier to find a god in Athens than to find a man. The Acropolis, which was the town's ancient citadel, right? It was a military fort, was described as one vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory and the worship of the gods. The national glory and the worship of the gods. There was the Parthenon, which you can see the ruins of even today. And there was the Agora, which was a marketplace, a sort of open-air assembly. And Paul's walking around. And he would have seen Mercury and Bacchus and Neptune and Venus and Diana and Hermes and many more. The term full of idols in verse 17 carries the idea of covered with idols, swamped with them. Right? One interpreter said it was, Athens was a veritable forest of idols. Now, Paul was no uncultured buffoon. Far from it, right? He came from Taurus, or Tarsus, I'm sorry. He came from Tarsus, which was a city with its own academic credentials. Right? He went to Jerusalem and was educated under Gamaliel, one of the, the leading rabbis of the day. Paul would have, on one level, appreciated a lot of what he saw. The stuff, a lot of it, would be lovely. It will reflect great artistic skill. But Paul is no fanny-packing tourist, right? On some, like, passport-to-Europe excursion. Paul is scrutinizing this stuff. And he's subjecting it to his own intense set of biblical convictions. So we're not getting invited over to Paul's house when he gets back to look at the photos. Look, this is me next to the altar of the 12 gods. They have great Greek salads there. What do we see when we go on vacation? What do you see on that eighth grade field trip to Washington, D.C.? Are there any gods there dedicated to the national glory? What do you see? Paul saw public, pervasive idolatry. You can see virtually the same thing in any American city or any American mall for that matter. Idols of sex, money, image, power, worshipers of the body, gods of success, worshipers of technology, devotees to the god of American individual liberty, all hostile to the way of the cross. 
We are not talking here about the idols in our hearts. There are plenty of texts on those, and there are plenty of those. Calvin said the heart, right, of the human being is a factory of idols. But it, it produces both private and public idolatry. Right? This text is about public, pervasive, national idols. Paul saw through the cultural pride, and he saw through the national history, and he saw through the legitimate artistic skill that's on display, and what he saw was a suffocating, publicly indulged in idolatry. And so, as one scholar put it, religious loyalty and moral considerations precluded artistic compliments, right? His loyalty to Yahweh precluded saying, oh, yeah, that's, that's a beautiful idol you've carved there. That's what he saw in Athens. No Christian that takes a vacation to Athens today seems to see the same thing. Secondly, then, what did he feel? We don't feel what Paul felt because we don't see what Paul saw. If we don't see right, we won't feel right. Paul saw rightly, and thus he felt faithfully. The text says in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him. Now, this Greek word for provoked is a very strong word. It's the word we get paroxysm from. It was originally a medical term associated with seizures. It means Paul was seized with indignation. He was provoked or he was roused to anger. Now that would make a good travel show. Call it Paul excoriates Athens. But the idea is not that he pitched a fit. The verb suggests settled, continuous reaction to what he saw. Right? He's not ashamed of what he felt. His emotional response is righteous. Right? And the best indicator of that is that this very verb for provoked is used in the Old Testament of Israel provoking Yahweh to anger with her idolatry. The apostle is emotionally reflecting the outlook of his God who will not give his glory to another. The God who is a jealous God. The God who as creator and redeemer rightly claims our exclusive, total allegiance. Now, of course, it's true. I mean, jealousy can be a peevish and a sinful thing, right? But if a third party enters a marriage, or if someone seeks to harm your children then any sane person is rightly and justly jealous. At that point, jealousy is a virtue. And that's the case here. Right? These gods are intruders. They have no business being here in Paul's mind. They subvert, they destroy, they capture human beings. And the God who made all people is good and just and loving in his provocation. God doesn't suspend his goodness or his loving kindness or his patience or his gentleness when he's provoked. He's good in his provocation. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Right? The fire of the divine jealousy is the fire of pure love. And that is what the Apostle Paul felt. That's what he saw. That's what he felt. And thirdly, then, let's look at what he did. You can see it in verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Right? We, we looked a lot at this last week, but Paul does not start, you know, he doesn't start a personal campaign to remove the idols. He doesn't start accosting people or denouncing people. Right? This is the same apostle who told us, don't worry about those outside. God will take care of them. God will judge those outside. But he went to the synagogue. And there he reasoned and disputed. And we saw last week he took a lot of time with this. He was not afraid of give and take. He did this over a number of weeks that he was in Athens. But notice this. This is different. Here in Acts 17, in addition to this customary practice in the weekly synagogue, the text says he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So this, it's not rocket science, but it is boldness. Paul talked to people about Jesus. That's what he did when he saw the idols. Out in the open market of life. Now, to be fair, I mean, these marketplaces were known and regulated as places for public discussion, right? This is not like accosting somebody in Adams, right? It's not that kind of marketplace, right? These were forums of debate. So Paul wasn't intruding on people who didn't want to listen. He went to the places where people argued in public about things, right? And he reasoned there. He's just as comfortable outside the church as he is inside it. So that's what he did. And then finally, where did it land him? Verse 18 says some of the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers disputed with him. As I said, these are the intellectuals in the marketplace. And it seems that they were quite critical. The middle of verse 18 says, uh, some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? What does this babbler wish to say? That, it's, a, it's a put down, this word. It's, a, it's local slang. It means a seed picker. It refers to birds that live off random various scraps of food. So the insult here is that Paul is incoherent, that he doesn't have a system, that he's just picking up a scrap here and a scrap there, and his ideas are boring. They're warmed over, secondhand, plagiarizing. It's a contemptuous term. And then verse 18 tells us that some of them said this. He seems to be advocating foreign or strange gods because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. His audience. Right? And this shows you the confusion in this culture. right? They, they think he's a polytheist. Foreign gods, plural. He's preaching foreign gods, multiple gods, Why? Well, because they think Jesus is one God and the resurrection is another God. Right? You talk about not being well understood by your audience, right? Jesus, and Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead in and through Jesus Christ, but they think he's talking about multiple gods. But there's enough about this guy that they wanted to hear more. So they take him, this is in verse 19. That's a forceful word, almost like being arrested. 
This is not a simple chat, right, that's about to take place. They forcibly take him to the Areopagus. Right, the Areopagus means the hill of Ares. Ares is Mars, the god of war. It's a hill near the Acropolis where the judicial court of the city met. And in Paul's day, it was more like the city council guarding the religion and the morals of the city. So what's happening here is Paul is being brought before this council for something like a formal preliminary hearing about his new deities. So it's very serious business. Right? This is not just a casual chat with the philosophers. This is like being arraigned. And in verse 19, they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know what they mean. Now, Luke is constructing this, right? All of this language of new teaching and foreign divinities and strange things is Luke deliberately evoking the trial of Socrates, who was accused of very similar things in this very place in Athens 400 years earlier. So the alert reader knows that Paul's life could be in jeopardy here. The trial could end like Socrates' trial did with death. Right? Socrates was accused of bringing new teachings, foreign divinities, strange things into the city. So in verse 21, they say, uh, Luke makes this comment, which contextualizes the court a little bit. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. So right, when skepticism overtakes a people, what you end up with really is a lust for novelty. Right? For a perpet- you need new ideas and new experiences. You need shiny objects. You need new distractions. But after all, if, if either the Epicureans or the Stoics are right, the whole cosmos is either a bundle of atoms or some sort of refined fire. What else is there then but diversions and new amusements, intellectual amusements or otherwise? So they're at a certain point where they're emotionally worn out and intellectually worn out as a culture and nothing new can bring them back, can bring them life, can stimulate. And we'll look, Lord willing, we'll look at Paul's absolutely magnificent proclamation and defense of the gospel in front of this council next week. As I said, this is just an introduction to that. But let's take to heart what the Lord has for us here in his word. There's a lot here. We need renewed hearts to see what Paul saw and to feel what he felt. Hearts that are jealous for the glory of God. Hearts that are provoked when our God is ignored or dishonored and when his glory is given to another. Right? Not because we're pompous or self-righteous, but because we know the damage that this can do. Right? We need to see what Paul saw, feel what Paul felt, and we need to do what Paul did. Again, he doesn't go on a tirade. He shares the gospel with people whenever he's given an opportunity. Whatever forums allow us the chance, whatever the risk, he's open to sharing the gospel. 
If we saw the idolatry and felt the provocation it is to our God more intensely, we would share the good news more eagerly. That's the lesson of this text, I think, in one sentence. Because only the gospel, right? Only the gospel can turn men. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians, right? That's another Greek city. Right? In 1 Thessalonians, he says, we have to, we've turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the good and the pure and the jealous wrath of God, which surely is to come. Right? We need the gospel because we need to be delivered in Jesus, as do others, from the holy wrath of God, which is to come. Amen.